The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Gaia, publisher of the Lead Lag Report, and a special guest for the hour is Chris Verone. I'm sure many of you have seen Chris on various financial media. So, Chris, I appreciate that we're going to be talking here, talking markets. For those who are not familiar with you, I always like to start off by having the guests talk about their own background and, and their careers and how they look at the world. So kind of riff a little bit on uh, on yourself for the audience, if you don't mind. Yeah, Mike. Well, first, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. I've always been a long admirer of of your work with Lee Lag. So it's a pleasure to kind of get the opportunity to do this with you. For those of you who do not know me, uh, my name is Chris Verone. I run the technical and the macro research at Strategus. This is a firm we started about 16 years ago. We were all at uh, a shop called ISI before that, working for Red Hyman, started this in 2007 and have been doing it ever since. Our business is basically macro research. We, we talk with investors in every little corner of the world. World. I spend most of my days in front of screens and the other parts of my days on airplanes going out to see these people. So, uh, you know, I think as an analyst, there is such a symbiotic relationship that we have to strike between how much time we spend in front of the screens and how much time we spend actually out talking to people. And again, I had the luxury of sitting in this unique seat where I talk to every single corner of the business, whether it's the hedge fund manager or the mutual fund manager or the vanillas or the long onlys or the endowments or the pensions. So I get a very good idea of what positioning and the consensus looks like. Michael, I like to say I try to do three things in my work. I think number one is probably the easiest. I try to be provocative. I mean, I look at thousands of charts every week. I think there's one thing I could show you or tell you that might surprise you or might change the way you think about the world or might confirm the way you think about the world. The second goal of my work is admittedly the most challenging. It's to be correct as often as possible. I think the bad news is, like anyone else, I'm probably no more right or wrong than anyone else. I I like to think I'm humble enough to know I don't know, though. And I think there's a lot of analysts out there who don't know that they don't know. We certainly know we don't know. We, we, we like to think of the world in very probabilistic terms, right? What is the likelihood that the evidence as it exists today 
argues for a continuation of what's going on or does it argue for a change? And then third, and I think this is maybe most important, I think it's been on display you know, these last couple of years, we have to be students of history. We have to know our market history. We have to know our cycle history because it, it generally does repeat itself or at least the, the behavior of investors tends not to change much from cycle to cycle. So we pride our, ourselves on those kind of three inputs. And that's really how I go about my daily work, Mike. Yeah, there's a lot we can we can talk about in similarities in, in terms of being in the industry that we're in, because I think a lot of people forget that when you're in the industry of investments and financial services, it's far more than just sitting down and, and looking at charts. I mean, that's a good part of your day and, and my day as well. But you know, you've got to be able to communicate. You've got to be able to go face to face to different people. And it's a business, right? It's more than just Analysis. I always make that point that you know the the business side of the investing business is very different than the investing side of the business, which we'll talk about. And, and I will say real quick that you know the word consistency is, is is I've always had an issue with that word. I know that everybody wants to have consistent, consistently right calls or an analysis, consistently accurate with things, but you know we know that markets don't follow a normal distribution. We know that you know magnitude often matters more than frequency and. Even if you have somebody who's right 30% of the time, I'd argue that's okay as long as when they're right, they're really, really right. You know, I would add to that, Michael, like, I don't even think you need to be right half half the time. I think you need to worry about slugging percentage, right? You know, all, all the all the great investors have always talked about this, whether it's Druckenmiller or Soros, or Besson, you know, they talk about the idea of when you're right, really getting paid for it, and when you're wrong, moving on. I mean, easier said than done, but we've described it in terms of focus on slugging percentage, not batting average. This is a business of slugging percentage. You know, the way we see that is really, if you look at any trend-following system, and I know many on, on the call here uh, probably are very familiar with a lot of the trend-following systems. We have our own. I'm sure you have your own. The best you're going to do is get about 50% of your signals right. But when you start digging in on the data, what is the max min ratio? What is the average gain versus the average loss, right? That is where the value, I think, of something like trend following really begins to be expressed. So in slugging percentage, not in batting average. Let's go to the, the name of the space. So yeah, you, you mentioned you talked to a lot of different uh, clients. I talked to financial advisors every single day in a, in a very unrelenting way. And uh, I had a conversation with somebody yesterday who... It was almost making it a foregone conclusion that the decline was over and that we're, we're in a melt-up type of situation. And I had to pause him. I said, you know, whatever feeling you have about markets here is largely driven just by the Fed and that one week, which was the best week, I think, I think since August 2020. The reality is most stocks since then continue to meander. You see it with small cap weakness still. So I, I want you to kind of talk through to the audience your thesis on you know, yeah. if the decline is over, and, and it's importantly, decline in what, right? So you've got stocks sure. which had a pretty sizable decline. You had bonds which had a horrendous decline with yields spiking. Talk through your thesis on where we are in the uh, macro environment right now. So I think the most generous thing I could say about this market is that it's a very split tape. I recognize S&P's up, but 13 off the lows. I think triple Q's is up 17 or 18 in both of those indices, you still have fewer than 50% of stocks above the 200. So uh, just kind of right off the bat, if you're looking at you know, levels of participation, whether it's broad or whether it's narrow, I think at a minimum, 
we can probably all agree that this rally looks different than maybe other rallies we've seen over the last two years. It's certainly more narrow from that perspective. And I think, Michael, what you said is, you know, the last two or three weeks have not treated every stock in a similar fashion. I, I think in particular, you know, something we wrote yesterday to clients, the title of our note was no banks, no consumers, and now we're probably losing semis. And it's not lost on me that there's a lot of inconsistent logic that we hear being applied for. We hear all the time, well, you know, Chris, Home builders are down because rates are up. Okay, that makes sense. But then why are banks down? Right? Because don't banks go up when rates go up? Right? So, hmm, inconsistent logic. Oh, you know, Chris, home builders are down because rates are up. Okay, yeah. Well, why are utilities up? Don't utilities go down when rates go up? So there's a lot of, I think, inconsistent, almost cherry picking of narratives out there. And I, I just don't care for narratives. I care about price action. And what I see is... You know, banks making 52-week relative lows. I mean, look at the Goldman Sachs chart. It's short. What I see is a lot of the semis starting to roll over here. Now, they haven't gotten to the best ones yet, right? If you think about the best ones of this cycle being NVIDIA or AMD, those have kind of still hung in there. They come for the best ones last. But, I mean, look at Taiwan Semi. Look at AMAT. Look at ADI. Look at NXPI. I mean, these are kind of bear markets that are beginning in some of those groups. And I think with semis in particular, Michael, and you might agree, there's a view that this is an untouchable group, right? Oh, there'll be leadership forever because there's a shortage of semis. Well, shouldn't they all be making new highs if that's the case? I mean, right now, we looked at it this morning, there's only 37% of the semiconductors above the 200, right? But that doesn't make sense with the narrative, right? The narrative is, wow, there's a shortage of semis, there's supply constraints, there's chips and everything. These things will go up into perpetuity. And that's that word that we hear all the time in this business. There is nothing into perpetuity in this business. And I think we're beginning to see that with the decay with some of the semis. So when I look at this market here, there are still certainly pockets of it that are working. I continue to like energy. I know it's overbought. I don't particularly care. I continue to like a lot of the big natural resource companies around the world. I'm sure many of which you know. But we have to be very, very clear that there are also big pockets not working. I mean, consumer durables trade awful. Banks and brokers, I think there's a message there. And these semis, I think, are really beginning to deteriorate here. So I think best, best, best description of this tape, I can conclude, is very, very split. Now, I think it gets weaker when you start to look in other corners of the world. Like, look at German DAX here. I mean, German DAX rallied 20%, could not get overbought, and is failing below the 200. European banks kind of rallied 20-plus percent, could not get overbought, or failing below the 200. Cospi really hasn't rallied here. So, you know, when you start to move away from U.S. and kind of to Europe or to Asia, uh, I don't think it gets a ton better. I'm glad you mentioned that inconsistency because that's been something that's been utterly maddening for me. So to your point, usually when utilities are performing, rates are dropping. You've seen a disconnect there. Uh, that's been frustrating from a tactic perspective. Lumber relative to gold also historically tends to be a leading indicator of tail risk. So, You've got really, I think you're, you're spot on on this point that there's this kind of cognitive dissonance that's gone on. Now, riff with me on this point for a little bit. I need convexity where treasuries rally when stocks go down. The so-called flight to safety where yeah. long duration yields drop, yeah. equities drop, like we saw during the COVID crash, like we see historically during prior crashes, corrections, bear markets. You haven't had any of that this year, right? We know that treasuries and stocks have been very correlated. Do you think that that we're in some kind of new dynamic where 
treasuries are not going to be seen as the flight to safety asset. I mean, gold obviously has benefited from the lack of follow through with treasuries, right? But but talk through this sort of relationship of treasuries to stocks here, because I, I think this is actually probably the most important relationship to, to watch for. So, Michael, we, we wrote a note not long ago. The title of it was Everything You Know Is Wrong. And of course, I don't mean everything you know is wrong. I meant that everything that people have relied on in this QE regime is is wrong at this point. I'm, I'm glad you clarified that, by the way. I mean, this is the first corrective phase for equities in 13 years. So in the entire QE regime where bonds have not offered a hedge. And, and in fact, I mean, 60-40 or risk parity, whatever you want to call it, has done more to hurt you over the last you know, 12, 16 weeks than it has done to help. That is a change. If you look at every equity correction since QE began in late 08, the, the average has been a decline of 10-year yields of about 125 basis points during that equity correction. We looked at corrections greater than 10%. So obviously that has not happened here, right? So this kind of invokes memories of an earlier time. And we've kind of split the world into two different regimes. There's the post-Voker regime and there's the, the pre-Voker regime. And I, I think what's interesting is the price action in the bond market looks far more familiar to what you would see pre-Volker than it does post-Volker. So for example, post-Volker, basically 1980 forward, treasury yields, bond yields would tend to decline, let's say in the six or 12 months leading up to a recession, right? They would give you the signal of risk off. Pre-Volker is very different. Treasury yields would continue to go up until you were about midway through the recession, and then they would ultimately break. So uh, there's a changing dynamic here that I think, you know, as you touch on, is so consequential because, you know, as, as we always say, like March was really the first quarter where investors, particularly retail investors, are going to open up their statements from you know, Morgan Stanley or from Bank of America and see brackets around their bond funds. Like there is a ma- that is a major psychological change when when equities corrected at least you expect it to be compensated with your bonds and that has simply not happened here now I think this 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 imagery of kind of pre Volcker where bond yields ultimately go up so much where they cause a recession or cause something to break is probably more appropriate to the environment that we're in presently. It, you you touched on the idea of gold, and, and this has been a big theme for us, gold as a better hedge than treasuries. I think that's going to be a theme that's going to persist. In the 70s, stocks and treasuries both fell, but what made this, and this is a little bit in the weeds, what made this very unusual is that even in the 70s, you did not have, when you actually kind of data mine a bit, this kind of weekly autocorrelation yeah, so strong, right? Where stocks fall, treasure, and like week after week, and so in other words, if you, even if you did a tactical rotation in the seventies, even though you'd think in, you know that would be a hard environment to rotate on equities and treasuries, the, the the dance in between is what generated the returns. You've had plenty of those junctures where treasuries, for a moment in time, compared performed comparatively better than equities, even in the seventies, and yeah, you know, some of those were, were obviously exploitable. The, the dilemma that I have with the seventies analogy, the pre-Volker, as you as you know, is that. I mean, back then you didn't have debt anywhere near as high as it is sure. today, right? The, the system cannot function at a certain point if yields were to keep rising in a fashion similar to the 70s. So talk, talk through some of those differences well, because I think people forget the context of interest expense and government liabilities in, in, in that framework. So I, I, I think there's a couple of interesting points there, and I'll, I'll talk about the history of this in a minute. But, but just to begin with respect to some of the signals presently, like I find it very interesting that 
utilities, for example, are outperforming to the extent they're outperforming even with rates up. I would interpret that as a message that ultimately bond yields are going to break something and therefore the market desires to express this defensive leadership setup. So that's how I would kind of interpret some of the odd leadership that we're seeing presently. Now, if you go back to the 70s, I agree with you. I, I don't particularly like the 1970s analog because it really skips the 1960s, right? So if you look at the last 10 years, call it the QE decade, it really resembled the 1950s, where you had very, very low bond yields. For basically all the 1950s, 10-year yields were pegged at about 2%, something called the Treasury Accords coming out of World War II to finance the recovery. So you had yields about 2% the entire 1950s. You never had more than a 20% drawdown in equities at any point in the 50s. I think the deepest correction you got or deepest bear market you got was S&P was down like 20.1% or something like that. I think it was like 56 or 57, but basically extremely low vol markets during the 1950s. You then began to see the the price of debt, or you then began to see bond yields start to change in the early 60s. I think it was like 1962, 1963, you push up through, let's call it like 3% 10-year yield, you're on your way to five, and the equity market begins to get less stable. Now, you're still in a secularable market, right? If you say the secularable market equities ended in the late 60s, you still had six, seven, eight years of rising equity prices, but your sharp ratios really started to come down. I mean, the Corrections became deeper. The bear markets became deeper. The, the the volatility became greater. That's kind of where I think that we are here. I, I, I think the tranquility of the last decade is likely behind us. And we've entered this 1960s period that's going to determine, I, I think, through policy actions, whether or not we get a 1970s or whether or not we don't get a 1970s. And I think hopefully for all of our sake, we do not get a 1970s. But I think that's going to require the appropriate policy action. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the lead lag report. And now, back to our discussion. So let, let's, let's keep going on utilities for a second, because that relates actually to the very first paper that I, I put out in 2014 that won the Dow Awards from the CMC Association. It's titled An Intermarket Approach to Beta Rotation. Mm-hmm. And what that paper documents is that historically, go back to the late 1920s, on a rolling four-week basis... So, so going back to utilities, so, so what I'm saying is that, you know, going back to the 1920s, based on that paper, historically, when utilities outperform, you tend to see higher volatility on average, and most major declines, most major tail events are preceded by leadership in utilities. Now, it, it, I, just to preface that, it's important to know that when utilities outperform, it's not a guarantee that you have a big decline in stocks. Of course. It's that when you have a big decline in stocks, utilities tend to already be leading, right? So it's it's A, not B, B is A kind of thing. Okay. So, so I look at utilities, to your point, I see them still very strong. I see lumber weakening. Lumber is important because it's a tell on housing, and we're, I think, going to start seeing 
housing data coming softer, right? Because you had this mortgage rate spike. And the only thing that's not really confirming sort of a, a tail event potential remains treasuries because yields keep on rising. Are, do you do you think that, and maybe this is a leading question, do you think that we may be maybe closer to a bigger risk off period than most realize? In other words, that this decline that we saw may not be it. I've been making that case for a while that what we saw was not classic risk off and that there's something bigger on the way. But but talk through sort of the the risks of a larger decline, you know, sometime this year. So I I think you make a lot of good points there. I'll, I'll try to unpack them kind of one by one. But you said something that I thought was important. You said, you know, every time utilities outperform doesn't mean you're going to get some apocalyptic risk off event. However, the risk off events have generally been associated with utilities outperforming. Now, I think there are people in our business who would then look at that signal and say, well, then it's kind of a useless signal. Right? What's the old expression? You know, the economists predict, you know, 15 in the last 10 recessions or something like that. Well, let's think about this a little bit, right? We've done some work and not dissimilar from the work that you've done. I've looked at utilities plus pharma plus staples. If you combine their relative performance, we looked at this going back about 60 years. And when the collective relative performance of those three groups is in the 95th historical percentile, right? What is the likelihood that you get a recession or you get a major market event at some point over the next 12 months? And the odds are about 40%. Now, you think I can say, well, shit, that's not too helpful, right? That means that it's wrong 60% of the time. But, whoa, wait a second. This actually is helpful because what are the odds of recession in any given year? They're roughly 10%, right? So I'm telling you, okay, I have a system that can get you to 40%, right? That's better than 10, and then we can start to connect some of the other dots. Now, where I would push back a little bit on kind of what you just said, Michael, is this idea that waiting for the confirmation from Treasuries this time, I'm less convinced that we're going to get that. And and that's where I kind of go back to this you know, 19, 1960s example, where yield really didn't decline until after the market broke or the, the new bull market in bonds was born after the bear market in equities had begun or after the recession had begun. So I, I think that's one thing to think about. And, you know, this other you know, idea that, that you touched on a few minutes ago, about something as simple as all the correlations are breaking down. You know, as I said, we, we've been using this language, everything you know is wrong. Well, it's not just treasuries don't hedge stocks that seems uh, to be different. There's a lot of things going on right now that people haven't seen in this QE regime that we've been in. I mean, look at the Japanese yen. You talk about the computers and the programs going crazy, well, Japanese yen has always been defensive. It's not defensive here anymore, right? What a major, major shift there. I mean, there's not many people in this business who've had to invest money with dollar yen above 130. It's been 25 years or something like that since that's been the case. Well, we're, we're getting there. I mean, this is the first equity market correction where energy stocks have outperformed, right? For the last 13 years, this QE regime Every single time equities corrected, energy led you on the downside. Not only did it not lead you on the downside this time, it went up in absolute dollars. Look at look at what we've seen with like Aussie, right? Aussie, you think of that as a risk on, risk off indicator. Risk off, you sell the Aussie. Risk on, you buy the Aussie. I mean, look at Aussie yen, look at Aussie dollar. They're all breaking out here, right? So there is a change going on with a lot of these correlations that I think so many big funds and so many managers and so many 
frankly, computer programs have relied on for the last 13 years. That is the big story. So to go back to what we've called it, everything you know is wrong. The correlations are changing, and that's what happens in regime change. By the way, I will say that I think the last time, correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, that you saw that kind of strength of utility staples healthcare leading to something major was actually in 2011. 18. Right, 2011, uh, the lead up to the summer crash, right? I think. Yeah, yeah we had it in 18, 18 right, too. Right, we had right. it. Remember, you know, 18 is a very interesting case study because bond yields don't peak until November 8th of 2018. My wife jokes that I know dates about bond yields and markets better than I know my kids' birthdays. So don't hold that against me. But I think it was November That's why you can take her on more dates. But that's a different story. <laughs> <laughs> November, November 8th. November 8th, 2018, 10-year yields peak at 326, okay? Well, banks peaked in February of that year. So the last six, seven months of bond yields higher from, you know, call it March to November, you had utilities leading, you had cyclicals weakening, right? So you tend to get leadership changing even before the treasury market change or bond yields change. So we saw it in 18. You're absolutely right. We saw it in 2011 as well, which was interesting. And I, I want you to remember, do you remember that ra- that equity rally in the summer of 11? It reminded me a lot of the equity rally that we just had, or we made hundred percent over these last four or five weeks. We're like, the data, I, I've been saying, okay, I've seen about 60% of what I would want to see on an equity rally to say, okay, this thing is going higher. And that's, I remember feeling that way in summer of 11. Like you got like a decent one or two days where new highs expanded and you're like, you know, this looks better, but man, leadership is still really defensive. So there's some parallels there, I think, between the rally in summer of 11 and this bounce that that we've seen right now as well. And I want to revisit that in a little bit because that does break with it an interesting parallel too, which is that in 2011, it was driven by not just the Eurozone crisis, but by S&P downgrading U.S. debt. And if we go back to the way yields are behaving now, I still believe there's a possibility that you may see something like that again. But we'll we'll talk about that in a second. But remember, when they downgraded the debt, when I think it was August of 11, U.S. debt gets downgraded, bond yields go up for a day, then they go down. Right. So this is another thing where like you could have all the inside information. Like if you knew, if any reasonable person knew that, the U.S. debt was going to be downgraded on, I think it was like August 11th or something like that. You would have you would have sold treasuries and you would have been wrong. And I will say also real quick on that point about what you mentioned earlier. It's like, you know, so utilities are performed, has an occurred in advance of the decline. And, you know, well, that doesn't mean much from a trading perspective. I always go back to every strategy is a function of three things, right? Your signal, in that case, utilities, your look back period. So rolling four weeks or whatever it would be. But then importantly, the opportunity set, right? So it's okay if you are wrong playing defense as long as your defense has a chance at making money while being wrong. That's why I'm not a fan of shorting, right? Because if you're wrong with your signal, you lose money one for one. But if you are either in low beta stocks or tilting that way or in treasuries, at least more often than not, at least you have a chance of being wrong and still compounding, right? That's, that's always a thing. Well, yeah, you know, I would add to that, like, there's this view that you need to be doing something all the time, that you need to have something on all the time, a view on all the time. And I'm just not sure that's true. I, I, I think in any given year, there might be one or maybe two big calls to make. And everything else is just 
kind of managing the risk around that. So I, I think the question we need to ask ourselves, was the big call in January that something's wrong, we got to get defensive, or was the big call four weeks ago that markets have bottomed and you got to go risk up, right, right? That is really the debate that I think ought to be having right now. Before you yeah. ask question two, let me just answer question one. I'm, I'm, I'm notoriously bad with two-part questions. I always forget one of the two parts. So let me ad address the first part first, and then you can ask the second part. So just to kind of inform the room, what, what we're talking about here is we've done some work. If you look at it in this QE regime, so this, this 13 years that we've been in where QE has been the dominant monetary policy, the stock in the Russell 1000 that has had the highest correlation with the Russell 1000 itself has been BlackRock. And I think that's interesting on a number of levels because who's been a bigger beneficiary of the flow and liquidity-driven environment that we've been in over the last 12 or 13 years than the recipient of all the flows, right? So I think there's some signal there from that perspective. And also, remember, Half the house is equity and half the house is fixed income, right? And I think, you know, as Michael Abbott was talking about earlier, you know, this, these, these prior 13 years, if stocks were down, bonds were typically up. So the fact that bonds and stocks are down right now, I think is being expressed through, like, if you're a believer that, 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 that risk parity is dead and bonds are not going to be a sufficient hedge to equities, uh, just short BlackRock, right? Because they are on both sides of the trade. So that's kind of been our general thinking of using BlackRock as an indicator because of its historical significance to really forward market returns. We've done it both ways. It's both. If you look at, if you just look at the coincident correlation between BlackRock and say S and P, your or, or BlackRock and Russell One, it's something like 0.85 or somewhere in that neighborhood. Then if you say, add another element, you say, okay, what is the forward performance of S&P next one, three, six, 12 months, whatever number you choose, after BlackRock has made a one-month low, a three-month low, some number, you start to get some pretty positive T-stats doing it that way as well. So it's the short answer is it's, it's really both. So the way I've kind of thought about it is, you know, the old, would you rather own rock or would you rather own paper? I mean, something we actually showed in our work this morning was the banks versus gold relationship, which is really weakened. You know, the kind of thinking about it through a, a risk on or risk off indicator, that's certainly deteriorated. But I want to make a couple points on gold. You know, in, in the spirit of everything you know is wrong, right? For this QE era, we've been told that gold can't go up if real rates go up. Well, it's just... I think the last couple of months have proved that to be incorrect. And I'm surprised how much, I'm surprised how, how many investors believe that relationship would last to perpetuity when you only had to go back to 2004, 2005, 2006 to find an example where gold and real rates were rising together. So I think right there is an example of you know, something that we've all learned over the last 13 years, which has now been proven incorrect over recent months. I, I think the other thing here that's interesting versus gold, that's interesting regarding gold that looks different today than, say, when gold was strong in summer of 20 was that a lot of the gold stocks this time are breaking out a huge basis. Uh, I mean, look at what Newmont Mining has done over the last couple of weeks. Look at Anglo American. Look at Franco Nevada. I mean, these are charts that are breaking out a massive, massive basis. So I like the fact that you have some of the equities behind this as well. And I'll, I'll say, like, I, I am not a gold bug. I, I, I could care less what goes up or down. I, I just want to make sure I'm there when it does go up. 
And I think when you think about 2021, right? So what was the S&P up last year? I think 25-ish percent. The knock on gold was, oh, you know, gold was an awful hedge. Why do you need a hedge when the S&P is up 25, right? The hedge is for when the S&P is not up 25. Gold was flat last year and S&P was up 25. So if it's at your hedge, it cost you $0 to be low on gold last year while the equity part of your portfolio ripped. So here we are today, and not only is gold outperforming equity, it's outperforming treasuries, which I think is the more important relationship right now. So we've been showing in our work the kind of GLD versus TLT relationship to kind of make the point, hey, Gold is your hedge against treasuries right now. Yeah, I think it's a, it's yeah. a good way to, to frame it. So I, I am curious, Chris, your thoughts on this sort of continuous behavior divergence between large and small, right? Because last year was horrendous in terms of small caps relative to large caps. And this year, you're still seeing large caps, you know, fare a lot better. And I thought that, yeah, I mean, one of the reasons that's cited for large being strong over the last decade is because of buybacks. Right, because low rates induce yeah. companies to yeah. shrink sure. supply. Well, if rates are rising, you would think that large caps would then you know behave more like small caps in terms of momentum, but we haven't seen any of that. So talk talk through some of this divergence because I still think there's something very off with the market where it's just being driven by a few select stocks. I'm gonna say something that might surprise people here, but before I do that, Michael, you made a point about buybacks. I I, I really think the news this week on Starbucks suspending the buyback is one of those headlines you'll look back to in a number of years and say, oh, that was an important piece of information. It's the first headline. When a headline seems so different than anything we've been accustomed to over the last decade, right? There are no headlines that so-and-so, some, you know, S&P company was suspending buybacks. Every headline for the last 10 years has been, oh, you know, who's initiating a new buyback or expanding the buyback, right? So that seemed like at the margin, a piece of pretty incrementally important news, and you know, I'm not from the I'm not from the kind of school of thought where I try to trade news, but I like to see how the market responds to news. I thought that was a very interesting piece of information. You know, BlackRock, I'm sorry, uh, Starbucks was in a bear market going into that news. I think it remains in the bear market today. Now, as far as 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 far as the question goes, which I've totally blanked on, Michael, remind me what I was about to say. What was the question? This is why I can't do two part questions. Yeah. You know, what do you think about this kind of divergence being as... Oh, as yeah. Small versus large. Wide as Small versus large. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I'm going to say something that I think is going to surprise people here. You don't want small caps outperforming. It's it's unhealthy. Small caps outperform in secular bear markets. They don't outperform in secular bull markets. And I know that's crazy to sound... That, that's, that sounds crazy because we're all taught that, you know, small versus large is an indicator of risk on or risk off. Yeah. I mean, it sounds convenient. If you look at the great secular bull markets and equities. Call it 1948 to 1968 or 1982 to 2000, or frankly, this present one, right? You'd say we broke out above the old highs in 2013, so it would be 2013 to present. What do all three of those have in common is that large caps were dominant over small caps. So I would be <laughs> frightened if small caps suddenly started to take up some leadership because they tend to lead in secular bears, not in secular bulls. I've always described it as the following. Small caps, I'm a baseball fan, small caps have what I describe as a minor league baseball problem. Meaning in bull markets, their best players are always getting called up and the worst players, the worst companies, the worst stocks are always getting sent down, right? So you're always left in a kind of multi-year bull market. You're left with undesirable constituents down the cap scale because all the good ones are being promoted and all the bad ones are getting sent down. So that I think is an important 
point in remembering, you know, everyone has this affinity for small. I want small to work on small to work. Now, there are things to do in small. There's parts of small I like, but we should not like if this is still going to be a second level market in equities. And that's my gut that it still is. I, I just think we're in like a cyclical bear here. But if we're still in a cyclical, a, a secular bull, you would not want to see small caps outperforming. That is unstable and uh, inconsistent historically. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. But I will say real quick, because I've done those tests myself. Also, it's you're right. The, the small, large, don't necessarily signal from a from a timing perspective of risk. Although, what I have seen is that typically, when you're at a major low, when you have a V capitulation, you know, type of move, yes, right. What happens right. is for, first you end up having large caps lead, then you have small caps. You know, initially right. large caps lead. Why? Because there's liquidity. There's doubt about it being the low. And then you kind of go down the liquidity scale, so small caps then lead, and then you go back to large caps. So there's this, and you saw some of that. Watch Michael, and you saw some of that, and you saw some of that off the COVID lows. I, exactly I think that's right. absolutely that's exactly correct. correct. Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, Ada, I was just actually looking today. I don't know if you know this. Since the March 2020 lows, you now have one trillion. As of like last week, you have one trillion of new dollars into equity ETFs in what's that 25 months, pretty, pretty staggering and pretty remarkable number. I, I think it speaks less to conviction and as your point, kind of more to flow. Now, agree with you in principle, and I, I've been debating kind of internally and personally, how do we take this into account with so many of the indicators that we look at and to what extent are they skewed by I think as you appropriately described, like this mindless flow, right? Mindless flow, mindless flow. It's a difficult question to answer. I, I go back to a mentor of mine, Ed Hagem, who ran a shop called Furman Sells, legendary investor, legendary Wall Street firm. And he, he would always speak about the idea that in every cycle, there's something called the psychology of ownership, right? Every cycle has its dominant theme or its dominant investor and you'd be well served to figure out who that is and just make sure you're on their team, right? So you would say in the 70s, it was probably trust companies. In the 80s, it was mutual funds. The 90s is really kind of the the advent or the dawn of like the, you know, the, the big hedge funds and Soros and, and SAC and all that. You kind of go to the kind of 2000s, right? It's the beginning of this private equity ETF proliferation or or even you know one could say that the dominant investor of the last decade has been the corporations themselves buying back their own stock or the central banks i mean i think at one point I'm not sure if it's still true that bank japan was something like a 10% holder in 95% of nikkei stocks right so identifying in every period or every cycle who the dominant investor is i think is a really important endeavor and, and you know on on that score you know, we have central banks likely to shrink the balance sheet, and we have maybe this Starbucks news is the beginning of a slowdown in buybacks. I mean, that seems like two really 
big pieces of incremental information that may change this idea of where the next incremental dollar comes from over the next number of years. So I know that really didn't entirely answer your question. And I, I, I think that's primarily because it's an unanswerable question. What I do think we ought to be aware of is how the psychology of ownership changes from cycle to cycle. Absolutely well said. And, you know, think about it this place, like the, like the small cap world, right, has become so undercovered. Like there's really not many brokers out there doing good fundamental small cap research anymore because it's been A, impossible to get paid. So like, <laughs> think about the dislocations that causes in terms of kind of identifying who, who the next you know, small cap leader might be now. But there's another big change here that's, influenced, that's influencing this. When Amazon went public, what year did Amazon go public? I think 95 or 90, 94, 95, it went public with a market cap of like 375 million bucks. Right. It, it came as a small cap company. Right. Look at all the IPOs over the last three, four, five years, all the high profile IPOs. They were 10 and 20 billion dollar IPOs. Right. So you almost get the small cap phase with a lot of those stuff. Now, my view is they actually may become small caps in the future, but that's a different story. But you, you actually skipped the small like the small cap incubation period has almost been taken private, which is a, such a change from what the market environment looked like as recently you know, basically pre pre 2012 pre 2010 so really really big change there and you know, I, I think it actually speaks to a, a broader point uh, michael I, I wanted to bring this up earlier when when we were talking about the market i'm having personally a tough time reconciling what people tell me they're doing with their money and what the flow and positioning data suggests people are actually doing with their money uh, like for example, was it three or four weeks ago? If you looked at any investor survey, they were all apocalyptic, right? Oh, you know, people more bears than bulls in the AII survey, more bears than bulls in the II survey, down the line. Yet when you looked at like the options market, really put calls never spiked. When you look at something as just simple as VIX, I mean, like VIX above forty is kind of more capitulative, never quite got there. When you look at some of the anecdotal stuff, I, I mean, Chase Coleman after a 35% loss at Tiger Global, was just $2 billion oversubscribed on a new $10 billion venture raise, right? Kathy Wood gets flows every single week, right? These things don't seem to square with the attitude that everyone is bearish out there. And uh, I remember, like, in tricky markets, and I think this is good advice, in tricky markets, go back and look at your P&Ls from prior years or... If you're a research guy, you know what you've written kind of in, in prior tricky markets. And I, I've been doing that a lot over the last few weeks, kind of going back to what was I writing in 08? What was I writing in 11? What was I writing in 15, 16? And I found something scribbled down in a notebook. It said money over words, right? Follow the money. Don't take the words. Basically, do your due diligence, right? People tell you they may be bearish, but do their actions really support that? And that's where I think one of the kind of bigger divergences is right now. I'll add to that, Chris, that it's even more deceptive than that because the algorithms will make you think that people are a certain way because they're showing you what you want to see, yeah. right? So, which makes it even harder to really know what 
the crowd is really doing, you know, and you're right on the actions point. I think, you know, foot call ratio is obviously a good way of seeing that. But even that, I would argue, is a little bit skewed, right? Because, of course, of course. You know, they have, also have now more players in the options market who are just doing it from and, a speculative perspective, not a hedging perspective. The other thing I, I would add in periods like this, and we're all guilty of it, it's so easy to either fall for or to peddle very seductive narratives, right? Because like, anytime there's something exogenous going on, right? whether it was COVID or Russia-Ukraine or 9-11 or LTCN, like take your pick, right? It's really easy for seductive narratives to be born out of that. But the question we all have to ask ourselves is, okay, is the market actually justifying this seductive narrative, right? What's been the most seductive narrative coming out of COVID? It's been Reopen stocks, reopen stocks, reopen stocks, reopen stocks. They've never worked. We're two years into this. We're still waiting on this reopen theme. I mean, come on, right? That that ship has sailed. Or you know, kind of if you think about, remember the early days of COVID. The early days of COVID was the big seductive narrative out there was, you know, events like this just accelerate trends that were already in place, right? That was the real seductive narrative. Well, it was a seductive narrative because everyone was positioned in that direction. I mean, people went into COVID long tech. Tech outperformed during COVID. So they came out of COVID extra long tech and then outperformed for another six months kind of after, you know, March, April of 2020. This Russia-Ukraine thing has actually been similar, but with one big difference. The similar part is, yeah, it accelerated what was already going on. Commodities were, were in a bull market for 12 months into this. And you know, energy was in a bull market for the 12 months preceding this. But no one owns that, right? So... While the COVID declines were greater, S&P down 35, and these declines, I think S&P went down 15, this, I think, felt worse for people because they did not own the stuff that outperformed during it, and they have not owned the stuff that's outperforming on the other side. That, I think, is a really important difference. So what you're saying to me is that all these gurus are not really making as much money as, as you might think. I the- think it's a mentor of mine, someone who I think you probably know, Michael, always tells me um, no gurus, just cycles, right? Yeah, no yeah. Gurus. I hear that guy's a guru, though. That's a- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, so hold on. So there's one narrative. I'm curious. There's a way to end the, the, the space here again. Everybody that's here, please make sure you follow Chris. And you can tell he's very uh, thoughtful. Let, let's say, surprisingly, Russia stops with Ukraine. Let's say the war ends. What do you think would be the biggest beneficiary? Because I actually don't think it would be stocks. I, th- I myself think, think it would be bonds. But but I'm curious. Just let's do a little, little thought experiment. What do you think benefits the most if you have a surprise ceasefire? Okay, I'm going to give you my honest answer. It's I literally do not care. I, I literally do not care because I think it's going to be an input that will cloud my judgment, right? My judgment is what the prices tell me every day. And the second I introduce something that is beyond my ability to forecast or input, right? Or I, I think that is that is the, that may stand contradictory to the message of the market. I really don't want that input in my process. And I, I know it's a very unsatisfying answer. But it's a perfect answer. No, no, that's, that's, uh, listen, I'm, I'm always a fan of making this point that, you know, narrative follows price. So you've got to follow price. First. Well, uh, so like we always say, like, there's a couple things, right? So like flows follow performance, right? We say virtue unless you're Kathy, performance, unless you're Kathy right? Wood, in fairness. Uh, <laughs> 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 She's the one exception to the rule. Virtue follows performance. Right. That's a big one here in, in this environment that we're in. I, I saw something the other day. There was a team, I think, from one of the bulge brackets put out a note saying that 
you know, gun manufacturers should now be included in any ESG fund if, you know, they're selling weapons to help preserve democracy or something like that. I mean, come on, right? Give me a break. Or, you know, what you're seeing now is like, now that the ESG model kind of seems to be breaking or fracturing, it's all about, oh, you know, let's buy the companies that one day could could become clean, right? Right. That's the way that they buy energy, right? Like, okay, we we got to own some energy because it's working, but we got to think of a virtuous reason to do so. Ooh, Chevron could be clean one day, All right? So, it, it, you know, this is a business that's driven by performance, and everything else chases it. Amen to that. One hundred percent agree with that. So it's anyway, that's that's a great way to end it on sort of the the sobering reality that uh, nobody knows nothing. So <laughs> and certainly not that. certainly not me or you. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Listen, everybody, again, thank you for joining for this hour. I'm going to try and do another space tomorrow at the regular time at noon Eastern. Chris, I appreciate that. Uh, we did this kind of last minute because I had a cancellation and then I had to move the time because I'm traveling, but uh, I think it was very much worthwhile. And everybody, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you, Chris. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.